You're listening to the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Great God, we summon you. Great Spirit who dwells at every object, every person, and every place, we summon you from far places into our present awareness. God of the north who gives wings to the waters of the air and rolls out the storm, covering the earth with silver carpet, temper us with toughness to withstand the biting blizzard. God of the east and of the red sun's rising, Embrace us that we neither neglect our gifts nor lose in laziness the hopes of each day afford. God of the South, whose breath of compassion dissolves our fears and meets our hatreds, teach us that they who are truly strong are also kind. God of the West and of the sunset, bless us with the knowledge of freedom which follows the well-disciplined life. God of the earth beneath our feet, store of unrecorded resources, we would give thanks unceasingly for your great bounty. Great God within, may we be aware of the goodness of the gift of life and be worthy of its priceless privilege. OCO and greetings. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. Today we will be talking to one of my favorite people, a good friend. Her name is Carrie Hawk Lassad. Carrie is a Shawnee, and Carrie is the executive director of Native Lifelines. Carrie, it's so good to have you on with me today. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Thanks for making time for me. Absolutely. How do you identify yourself, Carrie? I identify as Shawnee because Shawnee comes through our mom, but my grandfather's grandfather was from the Fort Peck Reservation. He um, came to Baltimore after graduating from the Carlisle Ended Boarding School. And then his mother was just in a boring, and his father uh, was from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. So on the Cheyenne River side, our family are Wambadishonka, so uh, dog eagles. And the 
grandmother was Tipi Ichpaya, uh, throws down the lodge. And then on the Fort Peck side, my family are Greg's and my cousins are headdresses and we're hawks on the Shawnee side. And I've heard that there's sock in there, but I'm not completely convinced of that. So, <laughs> but I identify as Shawnee. <laughs> well, one thing I can say about you is that you are an indigenous person from the Western Hemisphere. Yes. I called you a few days ago because I find you to be one of the most interesting Native women that I know. Now, let's talk a little bit about Native American lifelines, uh, the work that do, they do. What kind of services do you offer? Yeah. So um, Native American lifelines, formally, um, we are a Title V urban Indian health program. So what that means is that we are funded by the Indian Health Service to provide care to American Indians and Alaska Natives living in our area. Those services, funding came about, like all things do in Indian country, basically for fighting for them. So many policies like the ones that impacted my relatives uh, to bring them to the East Coast, but just other policies that really moved Native people around have left us in a situation where over 70% of Native people actually live outside of their reservation communities. And so in the 70s, activists were really um, lobbying to make sure that we had health care um, healthcare that promised through the trust and treaty obligations of the federal government, but that we need to have access to wherever we live. So the Office of Urban Indian Health Programs was established in the late 1970s because of the work of these activists. And there are over 40 urban Indian health programs throughout the country. So Lifelines is considered an outreach and referral. So what that means is we don't provide direct medical care but we link people to it and we have a budget to be able to help people pay for some of those services. We also have a pretty robust behavioral health program. So for our relatives who may be struggling with substance abuse issues or you know, some mental health issues, we provide direct care for them. And then what's kind of unique is one day per week um, in Baltimore, we have a dental clinic, so Native people can come and have general dentistry for free, which is really an asset in this area, particularly given the cost of dental care and, and just the human cost of what happens when we don't take care of our teeth. So that's a little bit about what we do. Absolutely. So how do you define who is an urban Indian and who is eligible for your services, Carrie? Urban Indians, we go by the definition that Indian Health Service gives us in terms of eligibility. And as one of my staff members mentions, it's like the only clear policy that we actually get from the Indian Health Service. Someone eligible for our services is someone who is an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe, someone who is an enrolled member of a state-recognized tribe like our Piscataway or Nanakoke or Lumbee relatives. Mm-hmm. And then anyone is a documented descendant of um, either of those groups of people. So because both quantum and different like lineage tests can, mm-hmm. can apply differently, if you can document that you are descendant from someone who is enrolled or eligible to enroll in a tribe, we can provide care to you. Absolutely. Now, in your mission statement, you talk about promoting health and social resiliency by using a trauma-informed approach that focuses on Native culture, 
Let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about that, please. That's what I'm most excited to talk about because that's where my heart lies. So we do work a little bit differently than other healthcare agencies do. I've found and having worked in the HIV field for over 20 years that there's this term that people like to use cultural competency. And it really doesn't mean to me as an anthropologist anything at all. What it means is I'm going to have the same brochure about HIV information, but depending on the picture that's on the front of it, Mm -hmm. I'm either going to provide it to the Latino community or the Asian American community, but nothing about the information changes. So we have sort of flipped that paradigm. When we do our programming, we start from a place of Native knowledge, our stories, our medicines, our history and culture, and then we build um, Western, Western programs around that. That's really important. And it's important to me, I mean, I, I mentioned that I have a family history um, connecting me to the Carlisle Indian Boarding School. And one of the things that really makes me sad is with my grandfather's grandfather, I only know his name in English. I don't know the name that his relatives would have given him in either um, Nakoda or uh, Lakota. And I know the names of his other relatives that didn't go to that school. So that it has really lit a fire under me to make sure that I learn and practice the Lakota language to the best of my ability. So when I was in grad school, I did work looking at just the health condition of, of folks living in Baltimore. We have a lot of substance abuse problems. There's still a lot of distress in our communities. And after talking with relatives and, and community members, the thing that people said time and time again is they felt that they would be healthier as a community if they had a stronger culture. So if, if what people are telling us is the thing that's making them unwell is an absence of cultural practices and indigenous language, then it made sense to me that to heal, we need to bring those things back. So in the programming that we do, we try to, again, use as much indigenous language as possible, indigenous, um, you know, frameworks, indigenous medicines. And then we try to do things in a way that's very sensitive to the trauma that people have experienced. So maybe they don't know their language and they're not able to know their language or Maybe, uh, like, you know, my grandfather, he was abused by Catholic priests. So trying to be careful in the language that we use. And, and, and really, when we consider the number of our women, especially who are impacted by sexual violence, just making sure that we take extra care to be sensitive about those things. So that's, that's why we talk about applying principles of trauma-informed care, because everything that we do, we want to make sure um, is not going to in some way harm or re-traumatize a Native person, but really honors who, who we are as Native people. Well, Pila, for that one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they branded the people that come from south of Tejas or Texas as being Latinos or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And you and I and a lot of our people know better than that. You know, They are the indigenous yeah. people of the Western Hemisphere, just like those of us from North America are. How has that community been receptive to Native lifelines? We have good relations with 
community members because absolutely my brother likes to say, you know, the, the border just moved over people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the imaginary line. Mm. They are our indigenous relatives. And, and some of our stories, like some of the Shawnee stories that I've heard, have origin stories that go back um, to Central and South America, which I find really interesting. So we're all part of one people, you know, across medicine lines. Now, what gets tricky for us is that um, our services, because we are funded by the Indian Health Service, we can only provide direct services to treaty people. So, so Mm-hmm. folks who are from or come from people who've made treaties with the federal government or those state-recognized tribes. So someone who is, is not a part of that group, maybe, you know, they are um, picture from Mexico. So, like, we couldn't pay for their eyeglasses or their dental care or anything like that. But if we're having um, a group to deal with domestic violence, they can absolutely participate in that group. Mm-hmm. And the same mm-hmm. is true for... Um, our Boston location, and I should have mentioned we have an office in Boston as well as, as in Baltimore. We work with a lot of First Nation folks, especially the Micmac in, in our Boston office. So we do provide, you know, those health education services mm-hmm. and um, behavioral health groups to, to people on either side of the line. It just, we have to be very careful when it comes to direct spending that we do it the way uh, the federal government tells us to. Is there anything else you want to add to the conversation so far? Um, I just, again, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you about Native health and to, you know, make people who might not be aware of our services but eligible for them or think they may be eligible for them uh, to, to know that we exist and they should absolutely reach out to us. I've got I've got a big question for you when we come back and, This is the American Indian's Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to the most dangerous show on radio, the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths, Justice for All. My guest today, Carrie Hawk Massard. She is Shawnee 
and a bunch of other tribes all mixed into one, a bunch of good stuff mixed into one good person. <laughs> she is the executive director of Native Healthlines, a very good friend of mine for many years. Carrie. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get to some touchy stuff. How is your agency responded to this COVID-19 crisis, pandemic, whatever you want to call it? You know, what's been the response from your agency? As part of the Indian Health Service, we are uh, considered part of the national critical infrastructure. So we are all still at work. Um, our people are in the office every day. We stagger it, but we are still available and providing care for people. And I think that's really important uh, right now because domestic violence doesn't stop because of COVID-19. Poverty doesn't stop because of COVID-19. Drug abuse doesn't stop because of COVID-19. So it's really important that we continue to provide care for the people. And I, I really... Um, you know, it's it's difficult and it's very stressful. It's frightening at times. And I'm just really so grateful to have the team of folks that that I have to work with. Our staff is over 90% Native. Mm-hmm. So everybody really comes to the work just with a strong desire to, to serve the people. With other types of illnesses or health conditions, like, you know, diabetes, we know what to do about it. Yes, it can kill you, but we we know how to respond to it. And information changes about this disease just constantly. Every day I'm on a different conference call with Mm -hmm. new information about it. So it's it's very scary. And there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially coming from the um, top of the United States government. I'm trying to walk that fine line, too, as a federal contractor. But, yes, one of the, the benefits, I guess, of, of being a small program is that we decided early on we were going to go through every active patient that we had enrolled with us and personally reach out to them and call them and just talk with them about what they know about COVID-19, share what we know, share prevention information, and just listen to their um fears and concerns. You know, so far of the people with whom we've spoken, it's interesting to me that there's less of a concern about COVID-19 itself, but more kind of the social and and economic impact. So people are worried about how they're going to pay rent, how they're going to pay their utilities, how they're going to access food, how they're going to get toilet paper, you know, just just those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. And there are people who really don't completely buy into the idea of social distancing state stay at home orders in, in both place mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know so some people feel like well it's the government trying to control me and I'm, I'm not going to do that that's you know that that is what it is the larger thing i think that concerns me is when people aren't concerned about taking precautions like doing all the hand washing that they need to do, wearing masks Mm -hmm, like they need to mm -hmm. wear. And so I think they make themselves more vulnerable, but then they make everybody in the community vulnerable. It was, it was on an Indian health service call the other day. And I I wish that I would know the the chief who said that she was a woman because, you know, women say the most awesome things. And basically 
she was saying, like, without health, we don't have an Indian community. That's and I right. think that's really that's right. true that, you know, there's such a level of interdependence between all of us. And, you know, we, we exist because of one another and our kinships and our, our tribes. And as um, my Navajo friends say, our kids, the mm-hmm. way that we're mm-hmm. in relationships to one another, all those things are really important. So it, it worries me personally when people in our community just don't don't take this seriously because I'm afraid that they're going to become ill and then put other people and their family and in their community in harm's way. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I think, you know, more people are on board with the personal protective. Mm-hmm. People are really worried more about how they're going to live, how they're going to feed their families, and how they're going to pay the rent mm-hmm. more than they are about contracting COVID-19. And, you know, um, I think one of the scariest things about this this whole COVID nineteen is how it 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 it's mutating. You know, it's just changing and changing and changing. I talked to a good friend of mine today who's on uh, one of the Lakota reservations, Rosebud, and I asked him. I mm-hmm. said, "I said, look, what's the situation out that out there?" He said, "Our chief locked the, the reservation down early." because he recognized the warnings. And uh, we've only had one case out here, and that was from a woman that's married to one of our tribal members who works outside a reservation. He said she came back and she showed signs, and we isolated her right away, and we took care of her with, with the little bit that we have to take care of. And she's okay, he says, but now another one just popped up yesterday. And... That one is that one is isolated as well, but you know um, I got to say something about uh, the tribes out there in North and South Dakota, like uh, Harold Frazier, the chief of the Cheyenne River mm-hmm. Sioux. You know he saw this danger early on, and he locked the tribe down. He told, "If you don't belong here, do not come on a reservation, and anybody that 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 wants to leave the reservation, you can't go. We need to keep our people yeah. safe." And that's a smart thing that he did. Um, but, you know, I was just, I got, I don't know, I, I, I guess because I've been on the air for 20 years and I've met so many people from so many different nations that I've got these friends everywhere. And I was very concerned about what happened down at Navajo and how it still be, it hasn't really peaked. Um, that's another subject for another time. So let's con- <laughs> let's continue to talk about about what's going on with uh, Indian lifelines, uh, Native knife li- mm-hmm. lifelines in Baltimore. What are the rates of testing and diagnosis like uh, um, with uh, your organization, and what should people do if they want to get tested for COVID nineteen? Well, that's a great question, and it's it's something that we are really fighting for and fighting about because I can't tell you what the rates are. And the reason that I can't tell you is because the state of Maryland and the state of Massachusetts and many other states don't collect information on race in terms of American Indian, Alaska native. Mm -hmm. So the data that I look at, you know, they look at white, they look at black, so typically it's white, black, Asian, Latino, or other. 
And I was looking at data from the state of Maryland um, a couple of days ago, and the number of folks who are listed as, as Asian, there are 489 confirmed cases. And then the other designation was close to 800. So I'm thinking, how many Native people are included in that and not counted? Mm-hmm. And so we have been really fighting with the state to get that changed. I mean, that has been important to me for a long time for a number of reasons. I'm going to make a quick detour about that. But Go ahead. Um, for example... Yeah, for example, like HIV, um, you know, even though that is far more under control now than when I first started in the field, it's important to know how many American Indians, Alaska Natives are getting tested for HIV, how many are HIV positive, so that we get the proper amount of funding directed to the people who need it. Data is dollars, and if you don't show up in data, then there's no money coming to you. But more importantly, people will say, well, there's no problem in the Native community mm-hmm. in Baltimore with COVID-19. It doesn't exist. The other issue, and we'll, this is kind of in advance of May 5th, which is the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. In the last year, two women from our community were murdered. Both were young women who were members of the Lumbee tribe One was kidnapped and later executed, and the other executed in front of her daughter while she was pushing the child in a stroller. Tiffany was listed as white in her death certificate and all official records, and Yasmin was listed as black. And again, they were both Native women. When I talked with my friend Abigail Echohawk at the Urban Indian Health Institute, when um, she and Anita Lucchese were doing um, their report on missing and murdered Indigenous women, they reached out to the Baltimore Police Department who refused to provide them with any information or to cooperate with them in any way at all. And the only reason that that Yasmin and Tiffany made it into the records of missing and murdered Indigenous women is because in Indian country, we talk to one another and we share that information. But that's, that's my big concern. The only reason that we know about COVID-19 cases in Indian country or in our Indian communities locally is because we talk to one another. Yes, we, yes. we can't at this time provide testing. So, you know, unfortunately, the Piscataway Kanoi tribe suffered a death in their community from COVID-19. I wouldn't have known that if tribal government didn't reach out and tell me. And so we've got to do a better job. You know, I went on at length and I apologize for that, but it's something that I feel really strongly about that not only is it bad public health, not not to to count people. And, and also, if you consider what we're hearing and, and what shouldn't be a surprise is that COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting communities of color, especially, you know, our relatives in the black community. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same social, you know, and, and health inequities exist for Native people as they do in the black community and a lot of uh, underlying health conditions, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, you know, they're shared across our communities or our bloodlines are shared across communities. So there are Native people who are being tested and who are dying and they are not being counted as Native people. And that brings me to the, the other issue, particularly in an urban setting, Throughout the history, our history with settler colonialism, the government has tried to erase us either physically or figuratively from Mm -hmm. the landscape. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. we are not present in data, 
we are being erased and we are being dehumanized. And it's just another way that that um, impact of trauma really works on our community. So it's something I feel really strongly about, not just from an epidemiological perspective, but from a psychological and social justice perspective, um, as far as our people are concerned. If you think that you have been exposed um, to COVID-19, the thing that you should do if you have a primary care doctor is call that doctor first, call a COVID-19 um, helpline or, or call an urgent care or a hospital. We really don't want people just showing up if they think that they've been exposed because that creates a potential where they could be positive for COVID-19, unaware of it, and then spread that to other people. So if, if people are mm-hmm. ill, you know, we want, we want them to call first. This is kind of like adding insult to injury, um, and I won't call it by its name, but at FedEx Field, Prince George's County uh, Health Department was providing drive-through testing several days a week to the people who wanted it. So you could either call ahead and get an appointment to be tested or your doctor could refer um, you. But, I, you know, I thought that was ironic that, you know, because of the way communicable diseases coming from settlers has impacted Indian country and then for us to get tested, mm-hmm. we have to go to FedEx Field, which is the home of that awful football team. So yeah, yeah. kind of ironic. This is the American Indian's Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to the most dangerous show on radio, the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths, Justice for All. My guest today, Carrie Hawk Lassard. Carrie is a Shawnee, and Carrie is the executive director of Native Lifelines. Carrie, you know, I'm really, really concerned about. Uh, how our blood has mixed with some other, so many other people's bloods, and how we're just wiped off the map because you'll see somebody that comes into uh, problems, health problems, 
and that person walks into an emergency room, their skin is dark. Their hair is not straight. Even though they are of what we call blended people, mixed cultures, mm-hmm. and they could have 90% native blood and 10% black blood, but they automatically look at them and say, oh, you're African-American. No, he's not. No, she's not. She's a whole lot of yeah. other things. And that, that, just, that has baffled me over the years, how mm-hmm. the uh, state governments have not done anything about making clarity there. And that's why I think that's one of the main reasons why we're miscounted in all of these senses and, and health issues and things like that. Yeah, and I wouldn't disagree with you. I don't know if you know one of my relatives, Andrew Ironshell. Uh, he's a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, but he has lived most of his life between Rosebud and Pine Ridge. But Andy said something that I always thought was really like so true that when even in our tribal governments, when blood quantum, you know, is mm. one half. One quarter, mm-hmm. when you can literally go from one generation to the next and not be who your family is doesn't change, but the legal definition of who you are changes. And Andy said, like you know, the more you you dilute that, then there are no people to whom trust and treaty obligations are owed. I just thought that was so right on because yeah, if we don't exist on paper anyway, then the federal government can, I mean, they already do what they want and they already, you know, run roughshod over treaties and trust obligations. That just makes it worse. And, you know, as you're seeing now, you know, with COVID-19, that everybody's attention is directed towards that and quietly behind the surface, things are being done like taking the Mashpee land out of reservation, out of, you know, reservation status Mm -hmm. or, you know, loosening restrictions, uh, loosening environmental restrictions. So just the administration kind of does its dirt while nobody is paying attention. And again, like who bears the burden? Native people on our own homelands. That's true. And, you know, I've, um, one thing I've got to say about the former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, I was very happy with him because he saw what needed to be done for Native people, especially Native people of Maryland. And he recognized them as Native people. And this whole yeah. this whole thing about blood quantum, that's a colonial ter- terrorist act that they played on us. Uh, yeah. So if you're, if you're Irish and uh, you got maybe two drops of black blood and two drops of Native blood, you're still Irish. But, If you're native and you got a drop of white blood, that doesn't make you white. You're still native. Right. You know? Right. And and such a great colonial injustice that have been that has been done to us as a people ever since they got here. Yeah, no, I completely I mean I completely agree with you. I I feel like um the tribes in Oklahoma, not that they're without their problems, but like, you know, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma or Chickasaw or Choctaw, they're based on, you know, are you on those those roles? And if you are, regardless of your blood quantum, you are a tribal citizen. They they mm-hmm, claim mm-hmm. you. 
And I, I have a friend, um, Jen Deerenwater, who is a um, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Um, she's by um, two-spirit, disabled, you know, she's got a lot of intersectionality going on. And she does a really good job of writing and speaking about that, just, just sort of the way the system, again, tries to invalidate mm-hmm. not just Native existence but those multiple intersectionalities so i you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's, it's crazy is- now um with the covid19 that's going on i got a friend and i can't call his name but he's an mm-hmm. elder from the onondaga people he was also a college professor and he's also considered as what colonial people call a seer someone that that, that that gets prophecies and someone that that understands uh, levels above as we all are. In other words, he lives part of his a big part of his life in the spirit world. And he told me, he told us, he was out here. He did a a sweat large ceremony money for us twice. But one of the things he said to us is that in January there will be a plague that's going to hit this land. And he said it's because our grandmother, the earth, is very unhappy with how we've treated her. And Mm -hmm. the creator is very unhappy with how we've treated each other. Mm -hmm. And it happened in January. Well, it actually happened before that uh, across the sea. But here, it started in January. Um, this 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 uh, COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. and then I talked to him. Well, we talked to him a few days ago, and he says this is nothing compared to what's going to happen this fall. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "This will go away this summer." He said, "But come the mm-hmm. fall, what's coming is going to be monstrously much bigger." in its effect on the people. I said, what do you mean? He says, all I can tell you is what's going to happen. And I can warn you because we need to start doing some things like when you go to the store, he said, they're going to say you're hoarding. He said, no, you're not hoarding. You're looking out for your family and for yourselves. He said, you're going to have to buy whatever you buy one of, buy five more, store it away. He said, because it's going to get real bad and it's going to last four months maybe five months, and you need to be able to eat to survive. I said, are you serious? He said, absolutely. So, you know, not many people are talking about this, but I know it, you know, I I see things too. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know whether this is the right time, but I'm going to just warn people that don't think because they're lifting these stay-at-home orders, that everything's going to be fine. Not so. This virus lives on, and we need to protect ourselves for the future and the future of our children and and the seven generations that come behind us. Do you have any comments on that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so, because, yes, I mean, I, I have heard that as well, and, you know, that's actually like a kind of a thread that runs through different kinds of theologies as well, that when, when we're out of balance, 
um, then then things don't go well for us. And, you know, we, we definitely are, are out of balance. And I was thinking about that the other day, like how can I reframe what's going on as a blessing? And if it's reorienting my perspective more towards spiritual things and more towards my family and my community and, and not just, just force me to slow down. Um, and and I, I think that that's been a good thing. Mm-hmm. So not just that, that that is something that we hear, you know, through our spiritual leaders, but, you know, Dr. Fauci said it, Dr. Redfield from the CDC mm-hmm. said it. And, you know, and, and they, they were punished for, saying that and and you know just talking about the ways that you know in the fall and winter we'll also be contending with the seasonal influenza so you know that that's just a lot to deal with so Mm -hmm. at native american lifelines you know we're kind of looking at how we're responding to covid 19 right covid 19 right now and what are we doing to provide for people so for example um we got some funding through the cdc and um, we are working with um, a, a student, a student at Hopkins from the um, Sault Ste. Marie Chippewa tribe, but she mm-hmm. studies um, food sovereignty and food security. And so we're working with Tara to look at what kinds of things can we get right now, those food items and, and, and native food items, and, and how can we get those out to the people in advance of all of this. So we're trying to, to look at sort of the lessons that we're learning right now, the things that people are concerned about, and then how do we prepare to respond to that need in the, the fall and the winter? Because exa- exactly that, I mean, we, we can't be caught with our pants down. We have to really make sure that we are prepared to meet the needs of the, of the community. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we're called to do that. So I think, um, that it is good advice that you know if, if you don't have food storage start now however you however you can water food and again not hoarding but you know grow food i mean and and that's how you know like it's serious i, I was before all this happened i ordered you know a bunch of seeds from seed savers exchange and um, I got some that I didn't have the growing in, or the planning instructions for. So I looked at that today and you, you can't get seeds from seed savers right now. So the need mm-hmm. to produce your own food, you don't even have access to. Uh, you might have like the chemically treated seeds, but the heirloom seeds, you know, Hard seed to come savers by. is not. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we need to take this really seriously and, and see this as a, you know, a shot across the bow and, make preparations we we absolutely need to take it seriously and you know i as to like back to normal i'm not sure what that will be i'm just kind of resigned to you know having my face mask at the ready washing my hands you know so much that mm. you know they look like my 90 year old grandma's hands but lotion, you know, those lotion. Are the, the, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean but those are the simple things that that we need to do and you know i i think it's probably gonna gonna stay that way you know for a bit i've got a really strict protocol that i follow when i come home from work my husband's in his 70s 
seventies, he, his uh, people are from um, the Ganawage reserve in Canada. And, you uh-huh. know, he, he won't see a Western doctor. He, he just won't. So, I, I mean, I worry about his health. <laughs> and so I'm trying to keep him safe and get him to take things seriously. So we have to do what we can. I mean, and that's, that's part of being a good relative that, that the health of our community in, in not always, but in many ways is, is in our hands. We can, we can play an important role there. So as much as we can to do that. And then if you have extra, you know, share it with your relatives or if you're in a position where you have, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a job. So I try to make sure when I get paid, I'm giving money to um, friends at Navajo nation. I'm I'm buying Mm -hmm. meat for my, my uncle um, that, that lives on Rosebud, that, that I'm doing the things that I can do um, to make things easier for my relatives. So, you know, it, it going back to that mindset that we shouldn't have lost hold of, uh, of as indigenous people. I mean, I mean, Takwe is not just something you say when you get out of the lodge, that's how you have to, that's to live. True. That's true. And I, I think this is a, just another important reminder of that. Absolutely. You know, I had Doug George on. I know you, you may know who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had him on the show about four or five weeks ago. Uh, and and we had a long conversation about this, this, this COVID-19. And he said, stop the music. I said, what? He says, mm-hmm. he says, you know, most of us Indian people, we have O positive blood. I said, yeah. He said, we're not the ones that are really in trouble. I said, what do you mean, Doug? He says, because we've been able to withstand smallpox, uh, the Spanish flu, SARS, and everything else. He said, yeah, a lot of us died. He said, but we didn't die because of the illnesses. He said, when they first came mm-hmm. over here, we did have a lot of people to die from the illnesses. He says, but as time went on, we died from being murdered and and genocide being committed against us. He said, Indian people have strong blood, and the Creator knew what the Creator was doing when the Creator made us and mm-hmm. gave us that old positive blood. He said, so, um, yeah, we should be aware and we should be, you know, maybe even frightened with what's happening with these different diseases. He says, but we have a fighting chance. I said, but what about yeah. what about our relatives? He says, that's when you pray. You pray for them. Mm-hmm. He said, if you think prayer don't work, then you're crazy. I said, Doug, yeah. I know it works. He says, well, how do you know it works? I said, Doug, I can give you a testimony right now. He said, well, what is it? I said, when my mother was sick, she was on dialysis, and she was a diabetic and uncontrollable high blood pressure. And they told her in 1975 that she needed to get her business in order because she only had a few months to live. I picked her up from dialysis that day, and she was just, you know, sad. I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? She says, well, the doctor said I may have two months. I said, the doctors don't know squat. She said, what do you mean? I said, the doctors did not create you. So they, they can't give you a date that you check out. 
Well, you know, your brother is graduating from the Naval Academy this year, next year, and he's going to get married, and I, I really need to see him graduate and, and go to his wedding. I said, don't worry about it. She said, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. I said, I'll take care of it. She said, what do you mean you'll take care of it? I said, you just watch. When I, when I, when I took my mom home and got her settled and fed her, I went home, and I prayed. And I talked to the Creator just like I'm talking to you. And I said to the Creator, I said, I know that when you put us here on earth, that you have a time for us to be here and a time for us to leave. I said, I'm asking you to do me a big favor. And that favor is to take a year off of whatever time you got for me and give it to my mother so that she can smile those two times for my brother's graduation and for his wedding. Do you know my mother lived exactly to the day that I said that prayer one year later? So don't tell me that the Creator don't listen to you. And that's why it's so important for us right. to all to pray, you know? So, yeah, I got my mm -hmm. per I got my personal testimonies and all of that, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And do you have any, clo do you have any closing thoughts? You know, I want everyone to stay safe and take care of each other. Those are my big closing thoughts. And then, you know, and it's really important to remember those relatives because a lot of our two-spirit relatives, especially our, our young people, live in homes that can be very abusive. And what's happening right now, you're stuck at home. You can't, you can't leave. So they may not be able to be fully who they are. And so we just want to make sure that we provide that support for them. So, um, our Facebook page is Native American Lifelines of Baltimore, and all the information can be found there. You know, we would love to connect with people. Absolutely. It has been so good talking to you. Uh, and you there are two things I want to do. Once this, this fear of this COVID thing is over, I want to come to Baltimore, and I want to say hello to your staff. I want to meet them. Uh, I'd love that. Okay. And the other thing I got a favor, you got you to gotta do me a favor that once uh, this is over with and we do our next mm -hmm. sweat large ceremony over here on my land, I would love okay. for you and your husband to come and either sit in sweat with us or just be with us when we do our next sweat. Well, I, I, I absolutely would love to do that because I... Yeah, I mean, th those are the things that sustain us right now, those those traditions. So we have to really just hold fast to them. You know, you know, I don't know whether you know how that sweat lodge came to me because, you know, you don't go and just build a sweat lodge. It has to come to you, right? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, Chief Arvo Looking Horse and Leonard Crowdog from the Pine Ridge Reservation, the medicine man, uh, they were making one of my good friends from Rosebud. His name is Frank King. Uh, a treaty mm -hmm. chief, a treaty chief of the Lakotas. And while they were doing the ceremonies for those six or seven days, my name came up. And Arvo looked at him, he says, you know Jay Nightwolf? He said, yeah, I know him. Every time I go to Washington, I stay at his house and eat his food. <laughs> he says, well, Leonard, what do you think? So Crow Dog says, exactly. So Frank <laughs> said, what are you guys talking about? We want you to take the authorization for him to have a sweat lodge out there. He said, well, I don't know about that. He said, what do you mean you don't know about that? Our people go out there all the time to go before Congress and other business that we have to handle. 
and they should have a place to pray the way that we pray. He says, well, I don't know whether Night Wolf is going to do that or not. He says, you just tell him that I, I said so, Arva looking horse. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, a knock on my back door, the end of March. And he says, um, I said, what do you want, Frank? He says, Night Wolf, open the door. It's cold out here. What do you want? He said, I got to tell you something. So I opened the door. He walked in. He said, can I use the bathroom? I said, yeah, Frank. He came out the bathroom. He says, you got any coffee? I said, yes, Frank. He said, well, I got to tell you something. I said, what is it? Arvo Looking Horse and Leonard Crowdog told me to tell you that, that they have authorized you to have a sweat lodge. I said, Frank, you've been a treaty chief how long? Two weeks? Yeah. I said, two weeks of treaty chief and you got your bonnet? Yeah. I said, so now you're going to be lying on Arvo and, and Crowdog? <laughs> No, man, I'm, I'm here. I'll get them on my cell phone. I said, I don't need your cell phone. So I picked up my phone and I called Arvo. He says, you know Arvo? I says, Frank, I've been knowing Arvo for three years. Oh, <laughs> Arvo answered the phone. I said, Arvo. He said, yeah, this you Night Wolf? I said, yeah. Did Frank bring that authority to you? And the case was closed. You don't tell Arvo looking horse or, or, or Leonard Crow Dog, no. <laughs> So we, <laughs> we've had the sweat lodge now for 15 years, and uh, every spring, well, we're going to have to wait a little later in the year. We, you know how you rebuild it every, every 13 moons. So we're going to have to say some prayers around that and rebuild it. But, Carrie, you and your husband and your family and your friends are always welcome to come and pray with us. And I would, well, thank you. I would be greatly honored to have you here. Well, as soon as we can, can do that, we would love to be there. It'll be good to pray together. Absolutely. Carrie, thank you so much. And tell everybody over there that thank I love you. And, and give your husband give your husband a hug for me and tell him his brother loves him. Okay? I will. <laughs> All right. I will do that. Thank you again. Okay. You're welcome. Wopila. Wopila. You have just heard my good friend and sister. Carrie Hawk Lazard, who is the president and CEO of Native Lines Helplines. Alcoholism, the abuse of drugs, and now COVID-19 plagues the American Indian. There's been many attempts, including our great leader, who's gone to spirit world, Dennis Banks, in the fight against all of this. Not the COVID, but alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and now this COVID thing. The American Indian, before the European invaded us over 500 years ago, was doing good. And then they brought their wave of violence and contempt and genocide and killing people only because they wanted what we had. Where does this all stop? All of us need to concentrate on what is going on today. Black people, native people, brown people have all been attacked by this this demon of COVID-19. 
We need to come to some kind of resolution and solution to all of this without the help of the United States government because they've done nothing but demonize us from the time they got here. And now we got this person in the White House who has done nothing to help us. The Navajo Nation is in great need. Indian nations all over this continent are in great need. We need to think about the solutions and the solutions is to put our heads together, unite and make it happen. A change must come. I'll leave you with this closing thought. My grandmothers and my grandfathers both would always tell us, never trust a white man. That's not necessarily true because all white people are not bad, just like all native people and black people are not good. Dr. King once said, don't judge me by the color of my skin, but by the content of my character. My grandmothers and grandfathers would always say, it's not about the color of your skin or the color of your eyes or the texture of your hair. It's not about the clothes you wear. It's not about your particular choice in the deity that you call and pray to your God. What it's all about is how you treat my heart. I'm Jay Winner Nightwolf, and I'll leave you with this closing in Cherokee. Danada goai wado. to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them all the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward, as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when penned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself.